Before we start, we just wanted to let you know that in this podcast, we discuss themes as such as the death of a child, drowning, grief, bereavement. A full list of content warnings is available in the description. Also, we talk about the film Don't Look Now, so there will be spoilers if you haven't seen the film. Also, we chose this film because it links to a film that we discussed in a previous podcast, Ari Aster's Hereditary, which is episode two in our podcast list. So we do suggest you give that a listen first. Hello, this is Panic Pixie Screen Girls, a podcast about horror and anxiety. I'm Holly and this is Becky. Say hi, Becky. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Today we are going to talk about the 1970s film Don't Look Now, which is based on a Daphne du Maurier story, which I haven't read, but Holly has, so she has some insight into that. Stars Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland as a couple who lose their daughter in a tragic accidental drowning and then go on to have a series of unfortunate events, shall we say. Um, And it's directed by Nicholas, I'm not sure if I pronounce his surname right, Rogue? Rogue? Rogue, yeah. He also directed The Witches, of which there is a remake coming out, Anne Hathaway, I believe. Oh, right, yeah. Seems unnecessary, but... Yeah, exactly. Seems unnecessary, but sure. <laughs> yeah, but I just, I feel old. Did you see the thing for the Craft remake? Oh God, I didn't know they were remaking the Craft as well. Yeah. Oh, stop it. Make new yeah. movies. So why did we choose this film, Holly, to discuss? I think it's a really powerful and beautiful film. I mean, there's so much to talk about in terms of the style, you know, the performances are really great. It chimes in a lot, even with the films we've discussed already and the kind of themes of kind of grief and fate, tragedy. Yeah, I think that's true because we discussed in our last episode, we discussed Hereditary mm-hmm. and it's quite a, an interesting film to contrast with that because they're both dealing with grief, intimacy, family relationships, but they're both dealing with it in a very different way. And they stylistically look very different as films. So it's quite interesting to compare and contrast a little bit and talk about this similarity of themes. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, they're both like superficially, the narratives are quite similar. It's kind of a married couple. They've got a girl and a boy child. The girl dies in an accident. And it's about the kind of how they grieve and the impact that has on their relationship. But the emotional range is completely different. Absolutely. So with Hereditary, there is a sense that it's already a family that's crumbling and has a lot of issues as a family. But with this film, the mother and father have quite an intimate and close relationship and the children seem quite happy in the opening scenes when the accident happens with the daughter. It all seems like quite a happy setting of an idyllic family lifestyle. But then 
the tragedy causes some cracks to appear within their relationship and the way they deal with it but they still have an intimacy and a love for each other which is very much missing from that relationship between the husband and wife in hereditary yeah i mean and i I think i quite like the kind of life goes on elements of it because it's quite normalized i mean they've had a you know a terrible experience and it's obviously still impacting on them but then you know because even in the drowning the other son is kind of witnessing it and he just looks so confused and just like oh is it okay is is she okay daddy you know they have to carry on and then they they have jobs and maybe they would like to go on holiday you know (laughs) can you imagine like Tony Collette and Gabriel Byrne just being all like we need some me time we should just get a mini break you know Airbnb just have a nice just kick back can you imagine? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there is a bit of a, a difference in that there's like there's quite a lot of raw animalistic sort of screaming and vocalization of the grief that happens in hereditary. Yeah. Whereas it's much more internalized. Although there is Donald does scream. Donald <laughs> does do quite a bit of wailing and screaming. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. But even so, it's still much more internalised in the way they're processing their grief. And it feels yeah. sort of more closed. That's not necessarily preferable, because I think it shows some problems with that, because Laura, the wife, has this kind of interest in spiritualism, meeting the sisters, and is actually very kind of comforted by the idea that their daughter is kind of existing in the spirit realm and is trying to protect them. But John... Yeah, Donald Sutherland is quite dismissive of that. Yeah, he's a sceptic, isn't he? And he's very rational, which is really interesting because his job revolves around churches. So he is in Venice restoring a church to its former glory. But yet he clearly has no sort of belief or inclination to believe. And yet he is the one out of the pair that has the kind of second sight. He has a premonition of his own funeral, but he fails to realise that's what he's seeing, which is interesting. I think for him, there's a warning, isn't there, of like being closed off from what is around you, not seeing and not listening. I mean, it is a, in some ways an often overwrought trope. So there are two sisters who we meet quite early on in the film one of whom is blind. They are older ladies who are unmarried and, you know, or appear to be unmarried and living together. And the blind sister is psychic, has second sight and sees their dead daughter and tries to comfort the wife over the fact that she can see this. But that becomes a trope because they become like the witches, the kind of the crazy blind person who can really see what's going on. Mm. It becomes a bit of a, what was the word you used before? Well, it's quite ableist, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because I can see, you know, as a metaphor, it's kind of interesting and works quite well in terms of like the different kinds of sight, because there's a lot of stuff about sight and whether you understand what you're seeing. And, you know, there's lots of use of kind of mirrors and different people watching different things and overlaid images and kind of unusual views on things but yeah I mean it's almost like the ableist version of the like magical negro trope because it's that they exist to be kind of otherworldly and to kind of bring revelations to the main characters yeah and it is poetic Hmm. in a way it's the blind person is the one person who can truly see Hmm. and that is very poetic but it is also problematic for sure 
there's a lot of symbolism within the film and that's one of the things that I'm very attracted to in the film. I like films that have a lot of symbolism, a lot of recurring motifs, a lot of patterns and things that intersect or come together at the end. Those are the kind of films I really enjoy and really get into. One could say that that sort of chimes in with my personality. I, as someone who suffers from OCD, something that really irritates me, and it's (laughs) important to mention, is when people say, oh, I like things to be orderly, or I like patterns, I'm very OCD. No, you you just like things to be orderly and you like patterns. That is not having a debilitating mental illness, which is what OCD is. But I do recognise that as part of my personality, which may be interlinked to the fact that I have OCD as well, I am very much into patterns and the way things intersect and work together. And it's nice if things have a meaning for me. So I think that's something I really strongly relate to in this film. So I've written down some of the recurring motifs and themes. Oh, great. The colour red, obviously. So... The little girl is wearing a red shiny Mac and we see the colour red throughout and we'll talk a bit more about that in a bit. The ball, she's playing with a ball when she dies and that reoccurs a couple of times throughout the film. Religion, religious iconography, that comes up a lot. Broken glass, that comes up a lot as well. The sound of broken glass and visually seeing it falling also reoccurs several times. The main character of Donald Sutherland nearly falls to his death. The bishop tells him that his own father fell and died. The daughter falls, the wife faints and falls. So, you know, that's a recurring theme. Bodies and things coming out of the water. So obviously the opening scene is the daughter tragically drowning in a pond in their garden. And then a really viscerally done scene of Donald dragging his daughter's body out of the water and trying to make her live, which is very sad. And then there's a poignant bit later on where he's just walking through Venice and there's a doll sort of covered in water just on the steps by the canal. And he just sort of picks it up and it just is quite a poignant theme, reminds you of what he's been through and then there's also a bit where they pull a body of a woman out of the water that has been Mm. murdered and that's really awful as well yeah I think because it's obviously immensely symbolic and and every shot in the film is kind of so well designed but I had felt like I had to work a bit harder compared to hereditary because it's I feel like hereditary is so in your face with all it's like symbolism and themes and I feel like this is kind of a bit more opaque I mean there's loads in there but it's kind of ambiguous and it's kind of the whole thing is about having like the limitation of sight and having kind of not having all the information that you need to kind of understand the situation you know and the dangers of that I think that's what I identified with in terms of like anxiety because it's the possibilities that a world in which premonitions are possible and in which the kind of the future exists before it happens and the possibilities for free will but then almost the feeling that you should be able to anticipate every danger because I mean that's something that I struggle with like worrying a lot about the future and feeling like I should plan for every eventuality because in some ways it's a comfort to them the thought that like the daughter is protecting them and that she still exists somewhere but then it seems like in some ways it's suggested that tragedies could have been prevented but it's the knowledge always comes just too late and so is it better just not to know 
so the other theme is prophecies and yeah the whole yeah. film is a self-fulfilling prophecy he's yeah. seen this red hood in a shot of the church that he's looking at on a slide at the beginning of the film and then that just takes us all the way through to the very end of the film when he is killed by a scary dwarf uh, for want of a better word, in a red hood, who he has mistakenly thought might be the spirit of his dead daughter. Yeah. I really hope you've watched the film, if you're listening. <laughs> that sounds crazy as well. <laughs> but it's actually a really good film, I promise. But um, yeah, there is a sense that you can't get away from your destiny. There's all these things that are telling him to get away from his destiny. His daughter is allegedly telling him to get out of Venice through the psychic but he doesn't and he has a premonition of his own funeral and he doesn't recognize what it is and he still carries on and there's two things for me there there's either a sense of he's not listening and he's not accepting and believing and if he just did he would save himself or there's this other sense of you actually can't save yourself no matter what you do you'll never get away from your destiny both of which are quite scary concepts yeah because if the future already exists, then it can't be changed unless it's kind of like many world theory. But if he's seen it, it's happened, surely. You know, time traveling is a conundrum. That's a whole <laughs> other thing. But <laughs> the priest actually has a line talking to Laura and he says, um, I wish I didn't have to believe in prophecy. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. We were talking before about, because I've had a relatively religious upbringing, and we were talking about how the religious iconography is very strong throughout the film. And, you know, you couldn't get away from it because obviously he's working in a church. The people that he's interacting with is a bishop of the church. And, you know, so all of that is quite obviously going to be quite present. But there are repeated things where you see crosses or pictures of the baby Jesus and Mary and various other things that kind of just constantly appear throughout the film. And it feels to me like it's telling us something, but it never actually overtly tells you what it's telling us, Hmm. which is uncomfortable in a way, but also I quite like it. (laughs) Like I don't like films that don't have a clear message often. I do like it when a film at the end of a film when they leave it ambiguous sometimes and you get to make up your own mind. That can be quite interesting. But I also think sometimes directors use that as a way to get out of actually making a point because they don't want to make a point or they don't really have a point to make. So sometimes I think that can be a weakness. Whereas with this film, I think one of the strongest parts of it is that it doesn't really tell you strongly what its message is. But there's so much in there that you could take a million different things from it. Well, it reminded me of this biblical reference, actually. I was just, sorry, I was just looking it up. I wasn't checking Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So just the idea that on earth we'll always have kind of imperfect vision and stuff. The religion of the film is kind of as much full of kind of mystery. Yeah, definitely. And mystique. Um, Similarly to all the other films we've talked about, this film has a real sense of foreboding, a sense that something's not quite right. There's a lot of disorientation. Yes. The way it's shot, but also there's a lot of Italian because a lot of the film takes place in Venice and they speak a lot of Italian, but they don't subtitle the Italian, which obviously for an English speaking audience can be quite disorientating. You don't understand what's going on and it places you in that place of being the outsider, which I think is quite interesting. Yeah, definitely. 
I mean, there's the kind of characterization of Venice as a space is quite disorienting and deceptive. Like a lot of the kind of alleys look similar and there's a lot of things with when they're trying to find the sisters again and things looking familiar but not being right. Um, but then it's also that they are not at home in that city. There's a kind of thing about like a tourist view that's not really understanding the real place. Yeah, and Venice is very much like that. Venice is lots of narrow places. There's like a code to the way the streets work that you kind of have to work out and to know. There's lots of twists and turns that will just take you to brick walls. So Venice is kind of, it lends itself to being the backdrop of this kind of film because it is kind of interesting like that. And also water is such a strong recurrent theme throughout the film because of all the drowning and it just keeps repeating itself and water comes back and back and back. And, you know, in Venice, you can't get away from water. Mm. Well, it was interesting when we were talking about the comparisons with the original novella, because Venice is very important as a setting in that story as well. But um, the daughter had died of uh, meningitis rather than drowning in the story. So obviously it's a bit more of a stretch to think that they would choose to go to Venice after their daughter drowned for a holiday, because there's like a hell of a lot of water there. So then they also added the storyline of um, John's work. But then also that that allows them to kind of bring in more of the religious iconography and stuff, which is the kind of addition in the film. Yeah. And the other thing, this is just an aside, but um, as someone who has spent quite a bit of time in Venice and I love it, it's really interesting because it takes place at the end of the season. So they're just coming up for winter and the hotel they're staying in actually closes because yeah. it's winter season. And so that lends itself to being, you know, there not being very many people about. And so there's a lot of empty streets and yeah. all of that stuff, which is not true now. If you went to Venice in the winter now, it's as busy now as it is yeah. any other time of year, probably. But I think that might have been more true in the 70s, that you yeah. would have had a period where all the tourists have gone home and, yeah. and it's actually much more of an empty place also kind of adds to the sense that they shouldn't be there and then there's not a place for them there you know that they're in danger and you know everything is telling them to go home (laughs) yeah 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 and also that you can't go back because you know that even like days later the hotel is closed and the guy is just chilling out and it's just like oh what why are you here what do you want it's not right you know it's closed go away yeah yeah (laughs) This seems like very perturbed considering like days earlier it was like a kind of fully operational hotel. Well, not quite fully operational. They were getting ready to close. They, oh. I think they were their only guests. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's even more than like, why are you hanging around? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, we were talking about Venice and the use of Venice. And you were saying how the tones and the colours throughout the film, it's quite drab and kind of muted, which is obviously a stylistic choice to make the red really pop when you see it. But it does give it, like, (laughs) I know this sounds a bit strange, but uh, with today's lens, it gives it such a 70s look as well to me. There's like that colour of film, like a lot of film from that era just have that kind of, (laughs) there's a lot of browns and... Yeah, (laughs) that's how I think of the 70s now on film (laughs) yeah and just to cast a kind of almost literal cloud over their whole holiday yeah it's not idealized at all there's always something and the kind of the look of it is very gloomy city yeah which is kind of true Venice is very grey because of the stone and 
you know there's not a lot of light as well in many ways because there's a lot of these tiny passages and bridges and links it is a damp city because of the water and there's rising damp up the walls and stuff so all of that is kind of evocative of the sense of venice but there's also a side of venice that is incredibly beautiful and incredibly bright you know the really positive sides of the water and you don't get any of that sense because obviously it doesn't link in with the feeling that the film wants to give you so should we talk about that sex scene <laughs> so it's got quite a famous sex scene um, which is quite a long sex scene it's extremely intimate it's not done for titillation or kicks it is done to show the intimacy of them as a married couple and I feel like at that point it's kind of like a healing moment for them they've been dealing with their grief and they've been struggling with it and you showed that the previous intimacy that they had at the beginning then when they're having food together in the restaurant later on you can see the cracks have started to show mm. he's working very hard that's how he's dealing with his grief he's throwing himself yeah. into his work she's there accompanying him but not really having much to do and feeling kind of a little bit lost and alone and there seems to be a bit more distance between them and then she is told about the fact that their daughter was there seen by the psychic and is still with them and still happy and she feels much better and suddenly she changes and then they have this beautiful sex scene together where they just reconnect as a couple. It is really beautifully done. At the time, it was seen as quite risque, even though by today's standards, you probably wouldn't say it's that bad. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. But I, mean, I think the first time I saw it, I was pretty young. And then I was just like, ah, but it just like <laughs> it looked so like awkward. But then now I'm just like, that's pretty hot. Yeah. And it is like... It's a very real sex scene. It's not done beautifully. As you say, it is a bit awkward. There is a bit of like arms not knowing where to go and everything. But it just kind of, it does work. And it's also the way it's shot, which is quite interesting, is they cut it with the scenes of them getting dressed after they've had sex, which is also quite... I don't really know what the artistic intention is behind it, but I also find it adds to the kind of intimacy of the scene. Yeah, I think it's just to show that as part of kind of normal life for them as well. It's kind of part of routine and daily intimacy because it kind of shows the things, you know, them getting ready together in the bathroom and dressing and just being so comfortable with each other. And then also that we talked about because the sex scene was only briefly referred to in the original novella and Nick Rogue said that he wanted to show that theirs is a happy marriage by adding the scene because they'd a lot of the other scenes like to drive the plot were kind of conflicts and they spend a lot of time you know arguing about things and he wanted to show that they were happy but I, that makes it more sad because yeah like they could have been happy they were already happy even though they'd had a terrible loss and they could have been happy again, you know, they could have gone on. It just seems such a waste. And then the last line, uh, John's like dying thoughts in the story that which really stuck with me is like, what a bloody silly way to die. Yeah. It's just like, oh. It is. It's really sad. And that's the, the strong feeling that you get from this film is it's just, it's very, very sad. In some ways, this isn't a traditional horror. It's actually categorised on Wikipedia as a thriller, but it is widely seen now and accepted as a horror film. And I think that's because it does have a lot of the things you would expect in a horror movie, that kind of sense of foreboding. And there's lots of paranormal elements to it and all of that kind of stuff. But I think 
overwhelmingly it's not a scary film it's an uneasy film Mm. and it just leaves you with a tremendous sense of sadness at the end yeah Yeah, which you don't get referring to hereditary i don't really get the same tragic loss sense at the end of hereditary even though everybody died (laughs) pretty bad (laughs) that leaves me with more fear i suppose than this yeah that leaves me with just like what the hell did i just watch (laughs) because yeah um the most famous kind of image from this film is of the red hooded figure running away down the alleyway and that's been kind of parodied in a lot of stuff um it's in spaced is the one i remember um (laughs) as if that's the kind of central bit and it's all about a kind of creepy kid but it's not really actually such a big part of the film. And also the whole thing is that John isn't scared of the figure because he thinks that's a child and it's possibly his daughter's ghost and he doesn't have fear. So the whole problem that leads to his death is that he doesn't correctly understand the situation. He thinks that it's a child in danger. It turns out to be an adult killer. It's mainly the only the kind of reversal at the end when we kind of understand actually what's happened and John gets killed. Then that's the real shocking moment. Yeah, and there is a real sense that the spectre of the killer is haunting the film. It's kind of hard maybe to pick up on as well. It maybe isn't immediately obvious to people, but there's a scene where they're coming back in a, in a gondola and they're passing the police doing, uh, you know, CSI stuff. <laughs> 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 the prints and everything at the potential scene of a murder. And then there's this woman's body that's dragged yeah. out later from the canal. And they know that there's a serial killer on the loose in Venice. And it's sort of that stalking the background. Mm. But you never kind of relate the little dwarf that you see very small snippets of which you don't know is a dwarf you just see this little red hood um you never kind of relate that necessarily to the serial killer until the end that's the kind of the big twist do we want to talk about the use of the dwarf as well i think that's quite important yeah Yeah, i mean because then also that's the kind of killer dwarf trope has been massively overused in horror and is obviously very problematic this is a person they are small the end <laughs> and they're only credited as the dwarf in the credits as well and we don't yeah, know anything about the motivations of this person what their life is like or if they even have a name <laughs> we get nothing about them in terms of explaining mm. well so you never kind of know is this just a, a serial killer who happens to be a dwarf who happens to wear a red hood and this is all a coincidence or is this some kind of paranormal like thing? We never kind of get that answered and how that links and what the purpose of that is. We never really sort of get that understood. Because she's very creepy in the end scene and it's quite monsterized in the kind of way it's shot and then just the shock of having a little old woman instead of a child that you thought so... I don't find that there's a particular case for her being anything other than just a human. But it's certainly, she's very othered. And um, as we say, like, that's the end of the prophecy. He's prophesied this red hood the whole way through. But there's also all this other stuff that has interlinked, like the water and the daughter. And it's all come together at the end. Yeah. Oh, it just gets me. (laughs) (laughs) A bloody silly way to die. Um, and also, like, it is quite visceral at the end where they, the dwarf sort of 
I don't know, some kind of meat cleaver or whatever. <laughs> she hacks wow. into his jugular vein and then blood, oh. is, really red blood is blurting out everywhere. And then he kind of um, sees the lot moments of his life and so you get snippets yeah. throughout the film of his life and what's happened. Yeah. Very poignant. And a bit gross. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I suppose we're supposed to know that he's definitely a goner. Yeah. But we're supposed to know that this is the moment of his death. It's not just like he might recover. And then we see the funeral at the end and his son is there. So throughout the film, at the beginning, the son is there and then he's not there with them in Venice. He's away at boarding school. And then right at the very end, he's there at the funeral and he's wearing a red woolly hat, you know, round off the symbolism and the red. (laughs) Brings it all back full circle. So rounding up, (laughs) I think it's a really beautiful film. It's a really beautiful portrayal of grief and intimacy, but also with a kind of horror vibe to it and a paranormal vibe. It definitely links in with feelings of anxiety throughout the film and how you process grief. And there's real strong mise-en-scene in the film, which is one of the things that I kind of relate to strongly in the symbolism within the film. Definitely a recommended watch from us. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Oh, yeah, I love it so much. In some ways, an old-fashioned ghost story, but then also very modern. I don't want to know the future, but also I do. It chimes quite a lot, you know, with these times that, you know, (laughs) feeling immense responsibility to kind of anticipate any kind of potential danger to myself and others and, you know, wanting to know how everything's going to turn out, but then also, like, suspecting that that would be bad. So, yeah. Yeah. And as you say, repeating the line from the bishop is a burden potentially to know the future. Yeah. And can you escape your past and can you escape your written fate? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, Do follow us on social media. We are at Panic Pixies on Twitter and Instagram. And you'll find us as Panic Pixie Scream Girls on Facebook. We would love to hear from you. Um, Until next time. Thank you. Toodle pip. You were listening to a podcast by Holly Parsons and Becky Lewis-Jones. This podcast was edited by Gareth (laughs) Lewis-Jones.